This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, August 21st. And now, please rise for the singing of our episode 106 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. And this is a weekly baseball podcast from Champaign, Illinois. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's been a somewhat exhausting weekend. I was uh, without my wife, and so I was a single father for most of the weekend, but I'm good now. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, We have a lot to cover this week, uh, so we'll jump right into it. Uh, a little intro for this week's podcast. Uh, we are deep into Little League World Series. Uh, that time of the year, we have a writer from the Williamsport uh, newspaper that's covering the Little League World Series. He'll join us later in the program. Uh, kind of a, a feet on the ground sort of reporting from the, the series. He's covered it for the last 19 years. So he'll have some insight on uh, Danny Almonte and uh, Monet Davis as well. Because that's really what we want to ask about. (laughs) Yep. Uh, We're also going to do a deep dive into the 1998 home run race, uh, which we haven't really talked about much as a podcast, and I haven't written about it on the website. Uh, So that was fun to go back and look at. A little overwhelming. You could talk about it for uh, weeks and and not cover it all. But we'll uh, we'll cover it for about 10 minutes, and then uh, uh, there's also a recap of a It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode coming up as well. That references the 1998 home run race. Uh, before any of that, a Nelly update in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. There was a uh, recap, a review of a Nelly concert over the weekend in Pittsburgh. And the review was positive. Uh, it says the following, quote, Whenever Nelly stopped, the fans knew exactly what lines to fill in. He shared a tender moment on stage, singing over and over to a little girl, which would made sense, but for the line, I can't keep picturing you with him, because we couldn't either. He rose to the occasion with rousing covers of Thomas Rhett's Die a Happy Man and DJ Khaled's All I Do Is Win, and hands up and swaying throughout the amphitheater on Just a Dream. Hmm. Some great reporting. Absolutely. Uh, so his, his uh, tour across America with uh, Florida Georgia Line continues. Uh, before we um, get into the podcast, we should note that we received our first ever uh, postcard as a podcast addressed to a foot in the box mm-hmm. from our loyal listener, uh, Scott in Iowa. Yeah, and he'll be on next week's podcast, the first a foot in the box summer flicks. Mm-hmm. What movie are we watching with him? Feel the Dreams. Nice. The postcard says Feel the Dreams. That's right. Yes, uh, he is living in Iowa, and the postcard is the famous line, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. So, Scott, thank you for the postcard. I uh, also want to do a shout-out to uh, Emily, listener in Florida, mm-hmm. who is a, a loyal listener as well. First uh, Florida listener um, that I'm aware of. For a while, we were doing a um, like a listener shout-out each week, right? Uh, by a while, you mean? Did we stop three, that three, three years ago when we ran out of listeners to shout out? Or well, that was uh, three years ago. So it's a good memory by you. Hmm. 
Shout out to Emily. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, some baseball banter. First up, Paul, the umpires are protesting. They are. And they aren't protesting anything that happened in Charlottesville. Uh, instead, they're protesting <laughs> Angel Hernandez's treatment by uh, Ian Kinsler, and mm-hmm. then subsequently the, uh, I guess, MLB uh, lack of suspension that Ian Kinsler got. Right. So over the weekend, they wore white wristbands in solidarity with uh, with Angel. It's but that that was just an example, right? I think uh, it wasn't an isolated event. They're doing it um, because of what I saw was like an escalated. Uh, amount of but it, Kinsler was the climax of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, that was I, the only specific that I saw. Based on your tone, uh, I'm guessing you disagree with it. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty ridiculous. I think. I mean, you look at some of the the most well known umpires, Angel Hernandez, Joe West. Those are the ones that instigate things with players all the time. Right. I think West did Friday or Saturday's Cubs game, and uh, John Jay was upset by a strike three call and walked back to the dugout. Clearly upset with the call, but didn't say anything directly to West. But West stared at him the entire way back right. to that guy. I feel like he just he instigates that sort and of West, stuff. West was involved with the uh, Adrian Beltre. That was him, right? No, Who, that wasn't him. What umpire I, was that? I'm not sure. Hmm. It wasn't West. Yeah, yeah. I'd say umpires in general. Um, the the more they're in the limelight, uh, the worse. Yeah, Kinsler. His comments, if you miss them, uh, he had been ejected for arguing uh, balls and strikes with Hernandez. And uh, a day later, he called Hernandez a bad umpire who is, quote, messing with baseball games blatantly, and then added, he needs to find another job. He really does. He received a a huge fine. It goes undisclosed, but uh, his manager, Brad Osmus, said it was the biggest one he'd ever seen for a player, Hmm. but he wasn't suspended, and that's what the the umpires are mad about. Remind me again, where do you fall in the RoboUmps debate? Against them. Against them. So none of this changes that? No, I mean, I I don't think this is a terrible story for baseball. I just think the umpires are lame to pick right now, especially with what's going on in America. To, sure. To protest how one umpire was treated because someone said some negative things about him to the yeah. media. Yeah, yeah, not a not a great story. Uh, another thing I had injuries. Uh, you had this past week alone uh, four major injuries that I counted. Max Scherzer, John Lester, uh, Bryce Harper, which was last weekend, and then you Darvish, all going to the DL, all marquee players on teams that are going to make the playoffs. But all that should be back. In the all next should be back. Yeah, two weeks. Yeah, Harper. Uh, you know, we recorded early last weekend, so we didn't get a chance to talk about it. But scary, scary play mm-hmm. ended up not being as bad as people thought. I think Ken Rosenthal, night of, was reporting. Torn ACL out for the that was year. A, or was fake a, Ken Rosenthal. That was a fake Ken Rosenthal. Um, they got Paul. They got me, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah, another thing we didn't cover because we recorded earlier, uh, Derek Jeter back in baseball. Mm-hmm. He's uh, kind of the owner of the Marlins now. Uh, he'll be the Theo Epstein uh, role with the Marlins. He partnered with retired businessman Bruce Sherman, who was actually a Marlins fan. It's nuts to me that a retired uh, person would be a Marlins fan. Just because uh, how young the team is? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he came of age as a baseball fan with the Marlins not existing. Uh, anyway, he was the top guy. He's putting up the most money. The The winning bid was $1.17 billion. 
I think it's good for baseball uh, because Jeffrey Loria was a terrible owner, mm-hmm. and we've talked about that on the podcast before. Dan Lambertard had a good uh, breakdown of why Loria was was terrible. So if you if you Google that, it's uh, it's a good listen. Do you think uh, I haven't read a ton about it? Will Jeter take on any of like the baseball decision making? Yeah, he's the Theo Epstein rule. So he's like he'll be making day to day trades and yep, that'll be fascinating. Yeah, we'll see if he's get any uh, good at it. He's got no experience. Some other uh, ownership factoids, Paul. What team was purchased the furthest back? Outside the White Sox. White Sox were eighty-one. The furthest back was seventy-three. Okay, I know. I know. Reinsdorf uh, is the oldest owner, I believe. Like age-wise, right? He's in his eighties. Uh, this team was the furthest back is seventy-three. Man, that's old. Um, also, the team valued at the most right now. Yankees. Yep. Nineteen seventy-three sold to the Steinbrenner family, uh, George Steinbrenner in particular, which has now been passed on to his sons. Uh, it was purchased for eight point seven million, and they are valued by Forbes at three point seven billion dollars. Uh, the Cubs were purchased in two thousand nine for nine hundred million, and they are worth approximately two point seven billion. White Sox purchased in eighty one, as as Paul uh, referenced, for twenty million dollars by Jerry Reinsdorf, and they are valued at one point four billion dollars. Hmm. And then lastly, the Cardinals uh, bought in nineteen ninety three. By is it Bill DeWitt, is that the owner of the Cardinals? Mm-hmm. Uh, for $150 million, uh, and they are worth $1.8 billion today. So, White or Cubs, $2.7 billion, what they're worth today. White Sox, $1.4, and Cardinals in between at $1.8. Some big dollar amounts. One, one other quick thing for me uh, number one picks, I was looking at them earlier today. Uh, Mickey Moniak, who was the first pick in last year's draft by the Phillies is terrible. Hmm. He in, in single A, he's got a slash line of 246, 298 and 351 in 448 plate appearances. He's an outfielder. That's single um, A you said? Yeah, and, and he's only 19. He came out of high school, but uh he would be the first position player bust, like total bust uh since Matt Bush in 2004 who, you know, has turned himself into a good pitcher. But if you take Bush out of the equation, you have to go back 30, 40 years before you find a position player bust, um, you know, someone that just never panned out. Um, so, so Moniak, I'm sure he's got uh, potential. That's why he was drafted. But so far, he has been uh, terrible. So every number one pick overall for the last, like, 20 years has made the majors. Position has player. Has made the majors? Yeah, position player. There's been a lot of busts for, for pitchers, but – Position player-wise, and um, I say that because the White Sox have the third worst record, and if the Phillies and Giants play a little better, they could get the um, top spot. And so, if you're any one of those three teams, you should be looking at position players. I think with the number one overall pick. Yeah, it really does the White Sox no good to win games at this point. Uh, the White Sox have only picked uh, first overall once, and they drafted. Frank Thomas. Nope. 1977. Harold Baines. Yep. Nice. Cubs picked first overall in 1982, and they picked Sean Dunstan. And the G- Giants have never picked first overall, so that would be the first time for them. The uh, The last nugget I had was uh, Manny Machado is playing well again. Had a three-home run game on Friday night, and that included a, uh, a walk-off uh, grand slam. Mm-hmm. 
we had talked about him a few weeks ago as a guy who um, looked like he would turn things around just on, based on some of some Statcast data. Currently has a slash line of 264, 319, and 494, which is up quite a bit from the first half. So uh, looks like he's trending in the right direction, heading into being a free agent after next season. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little Trout and Harper update. Uh, like Paul said, Harper was injured last Saturday. He'll be out until uh, early to mid-September. It looked really bad, and um, uh, we're lucky that it was just kind of a bad bone bruise or hyperextension. Uh, after initially saying they wouldn't look into the issue, Major League Baseball is looking at ways to improve uh, safety around the bases, uh, especially because the, the base was wet in that scenario. If that had happened to me, I probably would have like broke my femur. Can you imagine running as hard as you can? And you're like, like snapping like planning that. at the end, and then your foot just uh, yeah mm-hmm. something bad would have happened if that if I would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. For Trout, he is back to his normal self. He's slashing three thirty nine, four sixty four, and seven hundred, and he's a real MVP candidate in the American League. Uh, but he's only going to play around one hundred and ten games. Uh, his team could make the playoffs, so that'll help him. Uh, Paul, I know you're a big OPS plus guy. He's mm-hmm. he's up to 211. That is I fantastic. Think 100 is league average. Right. Uh, this past week, I wrote a blog post. I'm trying to get uh, some traction on the my my new stat, the 300, 450, 600 club. Did you read this post, Paul? I did not read the post. I saw you tweet a link of it. So. I had the idea to do it because of uh, the NBA's uh, uh, what, 400, 40% from the field, 50% from, from three. And 90 from free throw. Yep, 90, 90 from free throw. Uh, so I thought of doing a baseball equivalent, and 300 average, 450 on base, 600 slugging is a pretty good metric, or it kind of narrows it down. And uh, there's been 36 players that have done that in a single season. And uh, those 36 uh, are all great players. So um, I think it works. And Trout would be... What was the most recent example? Most recent example was Harper in 2015. Before that, you'd have to go back to Pujols in 2008 and then uh, Manny Ramirez in 2002. Hmm. So it's been a while. And uh, Trout has never done it before. So this would be his the first year. Um, and Joey Votto is very close this year as well. So it's just uh, it's a way to, to distinguish, you know, a guy's having a great season, but if he's in this club, that means he's just having a, a crazy good season. Uh, the leaders for their career, uh, Babe Ruth did it 11 times, Ted Williams did it 10 times, Barry Bonds did it 7 times, Lou Gehrig 7, uh, also 7 for Rogers Hornsby, 5 for Jimmy Fox, 4 for Frank Thomas, 3 for Mickey Mantle, and 3 for Todd Helton. Hmm. Those are the only guys that have done it more than twice. Yeah, something to watch for. I'll uh, kind of use this to uh, distinguish a, a great season going forward. Uh, both Ruth and Williams uh, did it for their entire career. Wow. Which shows how good of hitters they were. Yeah. So when you're asked who are the best hitters of all time, uh, if your answer isn't Babe Ruth or Ted Williams, I think you're uh, you're getting it wrong. Hmm. I think Bonds would be in the consideration if uh, steroids weren't part of the... But if Steroids weren't part of it, he'd be not as good as he was. Right. Sorry. Yeah. I just meant like if you didn't know he had taken steroids, like, oh, like I'm like 30 years from it. now and you're looking at numbers, I think Bonds would, would probably be 
up there. If steroids just weren't part of the equation. Yes. Got it. Aaron Judge broke a strikeout record. He struck out for 36 consecutive games, which is the new streak. He struck out again on Sunday, so it's now 37. His on-base in that stretch is actually pretty good, 344. Um, Still hitting third for the Yankees. Joe Girardi said he's going to leave him there. But uh, he has been uh, pretty bad since the All-Star break. Same for his teammate, Earl Des Chapman, who is no longer the closer with the Yankees. He gave up uh, two earned runs in each of his last three outings, 4.29 ERA for the season on him. I think he'll rebound. His FIP is 2.74, still striking a lot of guys out, but uh, not doing well right now. I think the Cubs broke him. Madden overused him, and he hasn't been the same since. (laughs) That would be good in my book. Paul, anything else before we do uh, baseball TV? Uh, nope. All right, baseball TV. First, a summer flex update. Like we mentioned earlier, on Thursday of this week, we will watch Field the Dreams with Scott from Iowa. The Monday after that, we're watching A Talent for the Game with David. And then the final Monday, Labor Day, we will be watching uh, what's the, the damn Yankees. Mm-hmm. Those damn Yankees with Matt from Minnesota. Yep, and we encourage you uh, to follow us on Twitter if you don't already. We'll be live tweeting those. Um, that's at a foot in the box. And then you can also, if you would like, watch the movie with us. We'll announce the time and everything on social media. So, Yeah, it should be in the evening, all three of those. Uh, Pride of the Yankees is the last one. Sorry, I got that wrong. Yep, looking forward to it. Yep, uh, all right, let's move into our TV episode this week. We watched an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, Season 10, Episode 1, entitled The Gang Beats Boggs. Uh, Paul, have you ever seen this TV show before? I had not. Did you think it was funny? Uh, I did not. You didn't like it? Um, well, I So I wasn't like totally in the right mood. You know, I was watching two little kids, mm. so I was kind of in and out and, you know, wasn't with a group that would enjoy it, so... Maybe my viewing experience. Benson didn't like it? He was not intrigued, no. He did uh, like the fact that it was on an airplane. He likes airplanes. Loves airplanes, yeah. Do you like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Uh, you have to be in the right mood. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it's an enjoyable TV show. So this wasn't the first episode you had seen? I s- watched a bunch of episodes maybe six years ago. I think it's on its like 14th season now. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's uh, popular. I think it's the longest running uh, live action comedy or something in, in uh, TV history. Yeah, I, so I don't know all the uh, the context for it, but essentially the plot for this one was the group, including an older guy, super old guy. I don't know if it's family. DeVita. I don't know if it's family or what. They're on a plane together and they're trying to break uh, Wade Boggs' record. Um, he allegedly what slammed seventy beers before a game on an airplane. Yeah, and then on an airplane. Yep. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with the show. Uh, the Wikipedia entry for it describes It's Always Sunny as uh, a series that follows the exploits of the gang, a group of debauched, self-centered friends who run the Irish bar Patty's Pub in South Philadelphia. Uh, so uh, Charlie Day is kind of the main character, and there's some family relationships, some friend relationships. Dan DeVito is the father of a couple of the younger people. Uh Anyway, that's all we'll say about the show. Uh, this episode, yeah, like Paul said, 
talks about Wade Boggs and his um, the reputation he had for drinking a lot of beer on flights and then playing in games the next day. Uh, so three audio clips for you. The first one is the beginning of It's Always Sunny, uh, Season 10, Episode 1 that we watched. Uh, number two is a PTI clip where Wade Boggs responds to the rumor that he drank a lot of beer. And then the third one is Charlie Day on Jimmy Fallon uh, discussing this story. So we'll play all three of those for you now. Oh, yeah. These are going down real smooth now. D, slow down. You're on pace to drink 130 beers. Don't ruin this for me, Deandra. This could be the last chance I got to do something great in my life. You jerks are just all mad because I'm going to be the one to shatter Boss Hogg's drinking record. D, Boss Hogg was a big fat redneck from the Dukes of Hazard. Wade Boggs is a Hall of Fame third baseman. Yeah, it's Wade Boggs' drinking record, okay? The man's a legend. He drank 50 beers on a cross-country flight and then absolutely destroyed the Seattle Mariners the next day, okay? <laughs> That's why we're doing this, to honor his memory, okay? May rest in peace. First off, Wade Boggs is very much alive. Secondly, the number of beers is actually highly disputed. Some say 50, some teammates said 60, some said as many as 70 beers. Which, to be honest, is an absolutely insane amount of beer. Nobody can drink that much. Not with an attitude like that. Perhaps we're taking this a little bit too seriously? Absolutely we're not, okay? The man is a legend. That's why we're doing this, all right? To honor his memory. Rest in peace, Wade. Again, he is still alive. Time for a break. Don't go anywhere. Because we're going to be joined by the newest Hall of Famer, Wade Boggs. That Ryan Sandberg? We will ask him about the rumor that he once drank 64 beers on a cross-country flight. And later, Ben Roth. Okay, now there was a sign on college game day about a year ago that said, Wade Boggs once drank 64 beers on a cross-country flight. <laughs> tell us that's true or tell us you got close on that. <laughs> no, it's not true. No, it's not true. It wasn't 64. But uh, a lot of people have fun with that. It's, not, it's nothing to brag about. But, uh, you know, you get bored on a cross-country flight going Boston to L.A., so uh, you got to... You got to spend the time doing something. What was the number? Give us the number. No, nah, we don't. We don't need to. We don't need to divulge the number. It was uh, put it this way. It was. It was a few Miller Lights. <laughs> We're going to pretend for the rest of our lives it was 64. Thanks for joining us, right. Wade. Congratulations. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a good day. It's pretty. The first episode, in yeah. fact. Let's just go right to that yeah. of this season. It, it is something a story that I've heard, and it is true. This is a true story. So. Uh, Hall of Fame baseball player Wade Boggs. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, played in Boston, played Amazing. here in New York. Third baseman. Yeah. Did a stint in Tampa. Yeah. For the Tampa fans. No, um, yeah, we had him here when he was a Yankee. This, do you remember when he got on the horse yeah. after the World Series? No, I remember <laughs> because... Yeah. That's how cool this dude is, man. He just yeah. jumps on a horse with a cop. He's like, let's uh, go, buddy. I remember my friend's father, like a diehard Boston fan, like having a heart attack. Just like, what are you doing, Boxy? You know, <laughs> get off the horse! <laughs> Yeah, I got nothing against it. Oh, so, yeah. Anyway, he was famous for baseball. He was also famous for the amount of beer he could drink. I heard these stories. Yeah, so supposedly when they would have these cross-country flights, he would drink on average 40 to 50, some say 70 beers. Like he's got like, like a... Like from LA, LA to New York type of thing? Yeah. Like, like a six-hour flight? There was like a layover somewhere in um, uh, North Dakota. And then, I don't know. So, 
So our characters are trying to break that record in, in so, the episode. <laughs> the and, first episode, yeah. you guys are all going to fly and see if you can break the record. Yeah, and then see if we can go hit a baseball the next day. Because not only would he drink 70 beers, but then he'd go like three for four. <laughs> the next day, so. He's a magician, this guy. Uh, no, he is. He's got like a hot dog eating stomach, but for beer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, so I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 the gang gets on a plane and they and they try to break the record, and of course, you know they're debaucherous and uh, uh, they don't. Your quite character do starts it. to hallucinate. I hallucinate and uh, actually start speaking to Wade Boggs, and uh, you got the real Wade Boggs to come yeah, on the we, show. Yeah, we reached out to him. You know, we're like, is he going to be okay with this? And he's like, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, how was he? Oh, he's great. He, he was great. Uh, Although, I'm pretty sure he was drinking actual beer when we were filming, because we all had, had prop beer, and then I noticed at one point, he's drinking now. Like, yeah. he's, he's, you know, he's, he's an alcoholic. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. But, but highly functioning. <laughs> highly functioning. True, no, no, no. Uh, he's yeah, a good yeah, sport. He should do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If he can handle 70 beers. I mean. Well, he told me that the real, the actual number, he's like, he pulled me aside, he's like, Charlie, really? It was 107. Yeah, so how does, how's that possible, right? Six hours, I mean, I'm, I should get Jeff Musial out here for the math, but six hours to drink yeah. a hundred, I don't even know if they have them on planes. Not six hours, so he would come, you know, to the airport about 12 deep, and then he'd be on the plane and just firing him back. Yeah, 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 And okay, then okay. And they'd then have the layover, layover and then they'd get there, and then they would go out that night, you know, oh. and then he'd hit third and hit two doubles. And, good gosh, yeah. that's, a, that's an amazing man. And, um, and, and so it makes for a good episode. 107 beers. 107. Yeah, Wade all right, I've got a Cubs uh, article for Out of the Box this week, Joe Madden uh, Focus. It's called Less is More, Why Joe Madden is Telling the Cubs to Show Up Late. It's by Jesse Rogers uh, of ESPN, um, one of the three writers that didn't get fired when they let everyone go. Oh, ESPN Chicago? Yeah. Um, Who are the other two? I was just kidding. Yeah, he might be the only one left. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Joe Madden's American Legion uh, week? Yeah, I think he's in it the last couple of years, too. So since 2009, which was the year after the Rays made the World Series, um, uh, for all of his teams, Joe Madden has employed this idea called American Legion Week, where he uh, tells the team that they can show up to the park no earlier than three hours before the game. And it's called American Legion because Madden likes to look back to when he was a teenager playing baseball and would show up you know, a half hour before a game after getting off work. There's actually a fine if you show up earlier than that. Um, it's in the form of a $100 bottle of wine. And uh, a quote from Madden in the article, he says, There are so many disconnected thoughts in our game about work and how you work. At some point, you have to turn it all down and go out there and play unencumbered. That's what this week is all about. Play the game of baseball like it was designed, how you grew up with it. And the results kind of speak for themselves. Uh, since 2009, Madden's teams are 130 and 91 in August, not including this season. Does he always do it at the same time always, of the year? Uh, he always picks a week in August. Since uh, Madden came to Chicago, the Cubs are 10 and 1 um, during the American Legion week. Again, that doesn't include this year. Uh, so, yeah, it seems like the results justify his thinking. Uh, Madden seem, Madden's teams seem to play better, not only in August, but also in September and October. So yeah, I think, you know, it seems like a no brainer. Um, Pete seems like a great move. Uh, what's your take? Think MLB in general overworks players. I do. Yeah. I know some of the Madden stuff has kind of got old for a lot of people, but yeah, this is something that I think the other team should embrace. 
I could I could just see it coming off as like a, a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. If you're in the dog days of summer, just uh, a couple hours over the course of a week of time with your family or, you know, whatever time spent sleeping would be good for yeah. a major leaguer. They interviewed uh, Hap and another rookie I, I can't recall right now in the in the piece, and they both said like they were kind of freaking out. They didn't. They kept looking at their watch, thinking they were late or like we're gonna miss the game. What time did they have to get there? Uh, the earliest they could get there was three hours before the game. Hmm. That's still a lot of time. I know. So yeah, it's. I think it, that speaks to the point that Madden's making that there's just kind of really weird uh, thoughts about work and like the work you need to get in before a game and how that affects performance. Yep. I remember hearing stories of Juan Pierre getting to the park like. 10 hours before a game to work on his bunting and stuff like that. <laughs> All right. My article uh, is more of just a story. Uh, it comes from MLB.com. But Chad Bettis uh, made his return this week. He was diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer last November, had chemo treatments uh, as recently as this spring, just 28 years old. Uh, it's a big story when, when it was announced that he had cancer and went through chemo. But he made his return this week. Two starts, both at Coors. He went seven innings in both starts, gave up a total of three runs, just 14 hits in those 14 innings, and only one walk. So he's been great, uh, kind of a boost for the Rockies, who uh, haven't been playing that well recently. Uh, John Lester and Ben Stiller uh, tweeted at Chad Bettis. Uh, So John Lester said, We haven't met. But I don't have to know you to call you brother. From my family to yours, congratulations on your return. Lester having cancer himself very early in his career. Yeah. Yeah, about 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. he had cancer uh, and returned from it. And then Ben Stiller, who I'm not sure the connection there, (laughs) but uh, he's got like 5 million Twitter followers. He tweeted at Bettis and said, any cancer survivor is a warrior. Hashtag respect. Did Stiller have cancer? That would be my guess. Well, let's just Google Ben Stiller cancer. Yes, you're right, Paul. Uh, It looks like he also uh, beat cancer. He had prostate cancer. So that makes a little more sense. It would be cool to see Betta start a playoff game, which uh, looks somewhat likely now that Mm -hmm. he's pitching well and the Rockies are still few games up for a playoff spot yeah there was a really neat video that you uh tweeted out from our account pete of uh, bud black the rockies manager coming over to bet us after his first start and giving him a handshake and um there weren't even a lot of words shared but you know black just kind of mm-hmm. smiled at him for like 20 seconds and gave him a pat on the back and w- walked away all right well that was out of the box next up twtw when you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, I've got an interesting TWTW this week. We're going to talk uh, base running sprint speed. Uh, before you do, some Hawk news. Go for it. Two things. Uh, Hawk does not like Wrigley Field. He was there for a series a couple weeks ago when the Cubs and Sox played. He's never going back. Mm-hmm. He will, quote, never step foot inside that ballpark again, ever. And he called it the worst press box, worst TV booths, 
uh, and he also called Wrigley a joke. Hmm. Uh, he also is on record as saying that he wants to release a book around opening day of next year, and in that book he promises to go after those who have defamed or criticized him and his friends. Uh, he's got an inter- interesting quote on this book. He says, Yes, it's about defending my friends and myself. It is also setting the record straight for my grandchildren. That is the reason I want to go until 2020, uh, in terms of broadcasting. That will put me in that very exclusive club that has only four people, Vince Scully, Don Zimmer, Dave Garcia, and Tommy Lasorda. That is being in pro ball all or part of eight decades. Those kids who are 13, 10, and 4 have a right to know that some things that were said about me were probably not true. That is what I will try and clear up in this book. Hmm. You think he's going to come after us? Maybe. And yeah, maybe he's listening. But uh, I'd lie if I said I wasn't going to buy the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As soon as I can pre-order, I'm going to. But, uh, I'm just curious the, to know. The real question is what picture will be on the cover. And like his grandchildren, who apparently are 13, 10, and 4, like who's going to be talking to them about Hawk? No one will know about Hawk. But I, I kind of get... Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I... I kind of get his point in that, like, there needs to be some definitive record. I don't, I won't agree with it because it'll clearly be biased. Um, and I, I feel like the things that people have criticized him for are more like just like fun things. I don't know of any serious allegations against him. But exactly. There's no reason to like clear the air. Right. Yeah. His legacy will be he's a fun, you know, energetic broadcaster that was a homer for the White Sox. Yeah. And I don't know how you would reverse. It's not like a single event that he needs to you know, set people straight on. It's like just the whole aura around him is kind of comical. And I don't know how one book would, would change that. Uh, but getting into my TWTW, uh, base running sprint speed. That's a stat cast metric to measure how fast base runners are. Uh, it, so the, the numbers I'm going to say here in a second, um, are the speed of a base runner by feet per second in a player's fastest one second window. So this is like max speed for every player in the league. And this is just so like one time or on, on average? Uh, one time. Uh, and so this is just uh, this year. Um, so the average, the league average is 27 feet per second. If you get above 30, that's phenomenal. 23 or below is, is poor. But this is just a one-time thing, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, the top five, any guesses? Yes, I'm kind of confused. As, like, I would much rather want to know someone's like average sprint speed versus like your top end. Yeah, this is saying more like, um, yeah, like I potential. said, potential. Yeah, your potential. Hmm. I mean, I would guess like Billy Hamilton would yep, be on there. He's first. Um, he's at see, thirty point two feet per second. Someone like Chris Bryant, I assume, isn't on this list, but he's like a great base runner, and he would mm-hmm. have a good average speed on the bases sure yeah i think that this one this set is getting more at like when you say is that guy fast you're probably not asking yourself does he sprint out every ground ball or does he run hard in every situation but it's like when he wants to run as hard as he can is he is it's kind of like a nfl players his 40 yard dash in a combine yeah a lot of people argue that your 40 isn't all that indicative of like how sure. good a player you are yeah and then, yeah this wouldn't encapsulate everything you would need to know about a base runner it's more just max speed so Hamilton's first. Um, I'll give you a hint for number two. You tweeted about him earlier this week. Byron Buxton. Yes. Uh, Bradley Zimmer is third. Indians outfielder who's sneaky fast. He's white and uh, doesn't look all that f- like just based on 
his physique and stuff, you wouldn't predict him to be third, the third fastest player in baseball. But it's just one time that he did it. Well, right, but yeah, you have to be super <laughs> fast to get to 29 feet per second. Uh, and then D. Gordon. So those are your fastest players in baseball. One time. The worst in all of baseball, the, the absolute slowest. Like the the worst tapping speed one time? Yeah. Now that you say it that way, that's, yeah. I don't know how they would figure slowest. Uh, Albert Pujols at 23 feet per second. So that's the fastest he's run this year, which is saying something. Uh, Brian McCann is a close second. I have a group of guys here, uh, a group of five guys, and I want you to tell me, uh, I'm going to go through each one, better or worse than league average. I'm about 80% sure that you're, uh, you don't, uh, the stat isn't what you're describing. So there's a 20% confidence rating in me right now? Yes. Um, I just don't think the metric, you know, if, if it's like average speed, it would just make way more sense for judging a base runner's performance. Yeah, but average speed is so um, dependent on, you know, like whether you run hard every time. and Exactly. Very important in judging a base runner's no, no, I think I would much rather know. You would want to know a player's top speed one time rather than his average. He's going to be close. Most major league players don't dog it uh, more than, I don't know, 20 or 30% of the time. I, I would I would much rather have someone's average speed rather than what they got once but the, running really it's fast. It's still helpful information. tells you when a player wants to run hard what they're – so like the fact that Pujols hasn't run you know faster than 23. Yeah. That's telling you something. All right, so going to go through these five guys. Uh, uh, Ian Kinsler. I'll go uh, slower. Than league average? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, John Jay? Slower. Yes. Cole Calhoun? I don't... Faster. That's correct. Jorge Soler? Slower. Faster. And Manny Machado? Uh, slower. Yeah. Am I supposed to think Cole Calhoun is like a faster? Yeah, so I was really surprised um, by Jay and Calhoun. Um, I thought uh, Jay would have been faster and Calhoun would have been slower. Really? I've never really watched Calhoun play. So yeah, there is uh, a StatCast stat, base running sprint speed. You can read more about that um, on MLB.com or Baseball Savant. Let us know if you're Team Peter or Team Paul on this stat's uh, or you could just go to MLB.com value. and read about the stat. No, I, if you're describing it correctly, to me, it uh, it means very little. I'd rather have their average speed. All right, that was TWTW. Next up, Sounds of the Game. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to honor the memory of Harry Carey. And to quote Harry, let me hear you.
That was Vince Scully uh, singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1998, just a couple weeks after the season started. In 1998 is the, the first season that Harry Carey did not sing the song because he passed away uh, between the 1997 season and the 1998 season. Paul, did you hear uh, Illinois basketball coach Brad Underwood sing the stretch? So I saw you tweet about it, and I tried to find the video, and I couldn't. Um, wow. I heard it, or based on what you said, it was pretty bad. Yeah, we'll have to play it to end the episode today. But uh, it was uh, not as bad as Dicka, but he was on that track. Hmm. Uh, picked this clip because of that, uh, but also because of the year. Uh, we're going to talk later in our deep dive segment about the 1998 home run race. That's also what the sounds of the game segment will be about. So for this week, I'm uh, just going to play Mark McGuire's 61st uh, home run, tying Roger Maris, and then his 62nd, uh, taking over the the overall record uh, by himself. And then we'll also play Sammy Sosa's 63rd home run, which tied him with McGuire at the time. Uh, McGuire went on to beat Sosa that year, hit, uh, 70 home runs versus Sosa 66, but Sosa tied McGuire at 63 for a couple games. So here is Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. There it goes! Number 61! Is it there? Yes! And McGuire is alone with Roger Maris! They are very deep. They play him to pull. Traxel winds and fires. Big Mac. Swing and a shot into the corner. It might make it. There it is. 62, folks. It just got over the left field wall in the corner. And we have a new home run champion. A new Sultan of Swat. It's Mark McGuire. He touches them all. Unbelievable. He hugs Gaetti as he comes around. He's pointing to the crowd. He's saluting the entire team at home plate. He gets a hug. He gets a hug from the catcher servant. He picks up his youngster. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'll just let you listen, folks. He's mobbed. He's mobbed at home plate. He's just mobbed by his teammates. They come out of the bullpen. Confetti fireworks. He did a line drive that got about a foot over the left field wall. 62 home runs, a new, a new home run champion, Mark McGuire. Way to go, Matt. 1 0 count, two down. Sosa waiting. Swung on! Deep Mark McGuire! You got company! 63! Grand slam home run! Sammy Sosa!
seeing a performance like this. This week's deep dive segment is on the 1998 home run race. We'll discuss this, and then we have uh, have our guest this week from Williamsport, Chris Massey. So make sure to stick around. Or if you're not interested by the 98 home run race, you can just fast forward now. So uh, the 98 home run race uh, was a big event for both Paul and I. We would have been eight years old at the time. I uh, definitely remember watching SportsCenter uh, every night watching the, the highlights of Sosa and McGuire. We actually would have been seven years old. Oh, that's right, yeah. Seven years old. Uh, you, you have memories of this, right? I do because we went to uh, a Cubs card series in the dog days of summer. I don't remember if it was. I think it was early August. But, yeah, it was. I think the Cubs got swept. Um, but, yeah, I remember it being all the talk it was about Sosa and McGuire and uh, the race. And um, I was amazed looking back at it. Both players were like really, really close heading into September. Like there wasn't a late push. Like they were almost a full month ahead of schedule in terms of breaking the record. So a little background into McGuire and Sosa. Uh, McGuire, who was 34 in 1998, was traded uh, the year before in 1997 from the Athletics to the Cardinals. He, uh, as a rookie, hit 49 home runs in 1987 with the A's. That's a, uh, a record still today. And then he hit 52 in 1996 with the A's. And then in 97, uh, he was going to be a free agent at the end of the season. So he was traded to the Cardinals. And then with the Cardinals in September, signed a three-year, $28 million extension. And then hit uh, 57? 58. 58 home runs that year. So it was very close to breaking the record. Sosa was five years younger, 29 years old. Had only made one All-Star game before 1998. He was traded a couple times before he got to the Cubs and then uh, was traded from the White Sox to the Cubs uh, before the 1992 season. So he was with the Cubs a few years before uh, kind of breaking out. And then similar to McGuire, uh, he was going to be a free agent after 1987. So he signed a four-year, $42 million extension with the Cubs. So I thought that was interesting that both players were going to be free agents before 98, but both locked in extensions, uh, which is a pretty uncommon occurrence in today's game. Most mm-hmm. players don't sign extensions during the season, uh, but both signed pretty big extensions, especially for uh, 1998 money. Yeah, and you know one thing that I had forgotten was uh, how much Ken Griffey Jr. was a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. He hit 56 homers in 97, was kind of neck and neck with McGuire until the end of the year. And um, according to a couple of reports I read online, speculation in spring training of 98 was that it would be McGuire and Griffey that would um, have a chance to break the record. And yeah, with Sosa only having one all-star game, he he really wasn't on anyone's radar for breaking 61. I think he had 36 the year before. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of May, a couple months into the season, five players had 20 home runs. McGuire, Griffey, uh, Griffey's teammate Alex Rodriguez, who was just 22 at the time, Vinny Castilla with the Rockies, mm-hmm. and then uh, brave slugger Andres Galarraga. Wow. Sammy just had 13 home runs. 
so it was well back of, of those five. But then Sammy had his historic June. Yes. Maybe the greatest month uh, for a power hitter of all time. For home runs. So he had 20 home runs in, in the month of June, which is... Four, four multi-home run games. Mm-hmm. That's still a record, 20. I don't think anyone's hit 19. What do you think his on-base was in that month? Mm, 400. Now you're, yeah, so you're thinking 20 home runs, teams are just going to stop pitching to him, he'll walk, or they'll intentionally walk him. His on-base was only 331 in yeah. that month. So, I, I mean, I'm sure there's dozens of months that are better all around, like even in 2017, than Sosa's June of 1998. If it's, I recall, it's crazy how little teams uh, pitched around him that year. If I recall correctly, though, he had a terrible eye at the plate. He wasn't as selective as like Bonds or McGuire. Yeah, but it, I, I have so many memories of him swinging over outside. Exactly, sliders. but I don't remember him being like a bad ball hitter, not like a Vlad reputation. I just remember him like destroying mistakes right. up over the plate. It was that Mark Grace protection. <laughs> Must have been. So by the All-Star break, Sosa had caught up, but was still third. McGuire had 37, Griffey had 35, and uh, Sammy had 33. The home run derby was at Coors that year. Sosa was injured. He didn't participate. And then I th- believe McGuire was in it, but uh, didn't do very well. Uh, Griffey ended up winning the contest. After the All-Star break, McGuire and Sosa really distanced themselves they become the talk of the country. Uh, later, we'll talk about Sports Illustrated covers. But, I mean, everyone was, was wanting to know, Sosa McGuire, who would break the record first. The record, of course, was Roger Maris. He hit 61 home runs in 1961, breaking Babe Ruth's record of 60 in 1927. Of course, there was lots of pressure on Maris when he did it. Uh, I never really understood why. I guess just because Babe Ruth was beloved. Mm-hmm. But uh, Maris at 61, and he had the record uh, from 1961 to 1998. And like Paul said earlier, it was early September where they broke the record. It wasn't like the last weekend of the season. Uh, McGuire actually hit home runs 61 and 62 in back-to-back nights against the Cubs, September 7th and September 8th. The record was Steve Traxel? Yep, 62nd came against Steve Traxel. It was McGuire's shortest homer of the season, line drive right over the left field wall. For that game, uh, Fox had like the simulcast of it, so broadcast TV, 43 million viewers tuned in, wow. which was more than what watched the Cubs-Indians play in the yeah. World Series, Game 7 of this year. Uh, after that, though, it's interesting. You know, McGuire becomes the first person to break it, but Sosa ties McGuire uh, at 62, just uh, about a week later. McGuire, in the end, though, hit more home runs than Sosa that year, of course. Uh, and he did that because in the last three games of the year, McGuire went on a stretch, hit five home runs, and got him to 70, where Sosa only had 66. So before the last few days of the season, it was still very much up for grabs. Yep. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the image that's kind of lodged in my mind is that homer down the line, but also... The um and I don't remember what game it was from when Sosa and Maguire do their thing where they kind of run up alongside each other and Maguire like fake punches Sosa in the stomach. That was, that was over and over again. when he broke the record that night. Yeah, because they were playing each other that night. Which was uh, I'm sure in the moment just a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. As we look back now, 
it seems less cool, but it's tainted by steroids. But yeah, at the time it was like these two guys, you know, fun loving uh, player from the Dominican, and then this great family man from the Cardinals, like coming together, and what yeah. a what a cool friendship. Uh, overall, in 1998, McGuire hit 299, 470 on base, uh, 752 slugging, 70 home runs, 147 RBIs. Sosa, uh, who won the MVP over McGuire, hit 308 with a 377 on base and a 647 slugging, 66 home runs, 158 RBIs, and 18 steals. Wow. The MVP voting was strange to me. Of the 32 first-place votes, how many do you think went to Sosa over McGuire? So Sosa won it, right? Sosa won it. McGuire got second, and those are the only two that got first-place uh, votes. 18. 30 first-place votes went to Sosa. Two went to McGuire. It's probably mostly due to the Cubs making the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the, the Cardinals were 83-79. and 79, The Cubs were 90-73 and 73 and, and won the wild card that year. Uh, but, I mean, just from a stat perspective, McGuire had the better season. Sure. And even by war... Uh, McGuire had a 7.5 war, Sosa 6.4. The real MVP that year was Bonds, had an 8.1 war. And I think in Game of Shadows, it references 98 as the the season that Bonds got upset, uh, that he wasn't getting more attention. That's when he supposedly started taking steroids. Yeah, he saw all the attention focused on these two guys who could just hit homers, didn't really care about their all-around games, and so he decided, I'm going to do the same thing. Two kind of sports journalism things I wanted to uh, briefly touch on. Sports Illustrated covers are kind of a good time capsule into what's captivating the sports world. 1988, uh, Sosa and McGuire appeared on SI, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Wow. So March 23rd, the season preview, McGuire was on the cover. The title, Get Ready for a Slugfest, Why Maris's Record and a Lot of Others Could Fall. 62 pages of scouting reports. And then in June of that year, so a few months later, Sosa was on the cover with the title, Watch Out, Mark McGuire, Here Comes Slam and Sammy. August 3rd, McGuire was on the cover, The Great Home Run Race, In Pursuit of Mac, Jr., and Sammy, A Remarkable 72-Hour Odyssey. One month later, September 7th, McGuire was on the cover, and this was the start of a three-week consecutive cover stretch. Uh, McGuire was on the cover, One Cool Daddy, (laughs) <laughs> How Mark McGuire is beating the pressure. It's a picture of McGuire and his son. September 14th, McGuire was on the cover again. The record, what it means to Mark McGuire and to America. Hmm. That'd be a good one to, to follow up on and read. And then the last one of the season, uh, Sosa. Suddenly it's this close. Sammy Sosa jumps right back into the home run race. Uh, and then the last one it comes from December 21st. And it's the one you probably remember most. Sportsman of the Year is McGuire and Sosa in the, the Greek gods' outfits. Yes, they have the crowns on. Yep, with the enormous biceps that were, of course, aided by steroids. Uh, the second thing I wanted to, to bring up uh, was the issue of steroids, because it was discussed in 98, especially with McGuire. An AP writer saw a bottle of uh, a type of steroid, in McGuire's locker. Illegal steroid. The only, at the time, the only thing that was illegal in, in, in Major League Baseball were things that were illegal in the country, and this type of steroid wasn't illegal in the country. so it was. Yeah, yeah it was banned in the NFL, but not in Major League Baseball. That's right. Uh, and Tony La Russa ripped on the AP writer for writing about it. Yep. Said that he should be punished. Uh, 
the article that I'm going to reference here is from Buster Only, New York Times in August of 98. I'll link to it in the podcast show notes. It starts with uh, this line. When Joe Torre played, one of the performance-enhancing tickets was a thick steak. Ten or even five years ago, players filled themselves with pasta to load up on carbohydrates. And ballplayers of all generations have been liberal users of coffee and nicotine products. On the face of it, some Yankees believe a parallel can be drawn between these products and androcetidine. That's the pill that McGuire took. A testosterone-producing pill that McGuire says he has been using for over a year. Like pasta or steak, the substance can be bought over the counter, and while it has been banned by the NFL and the International Olympic Committee, because it is thought to provide an unfair advantage, there is nothing that bars its use in baseball. So, uh, no difference. According, yeah, according to Joe Torre, Buster only, no difference between a thick steak and uh, androdestatine. Wow. Uh, uh, later in the article, <laughs> uh, from, from only... The clear sentiment among baseball people is that fans should instead concentrate on just how difficult a feat McGuire and Sosa are trying and just how accomplished both are as hitters. And so stop focusing on the steroids. Just concentrate on how difficult this is to accomplish. Yeah, you lose a little bit of respect for only based on that. A um, couple of things I want to touch on. I didn't realize this, but President Clinton in 1999, this would have been January of 99 actually talked about Sosa in his State of the Union address, hmm. which I thought was was fun. And then also, you know, as I was going back and reading about this, you get mixed views on just how valuable the race was for baseball. You know, I think the narrative generally is that uh, the race helped save baseball or brought the fans back. Yeah. But if you dig into the numbers, it's just murkier than that. You can't really say that definitively. The average number of uh, of people at a Major League Baseball game increased more in 96 and 97 than it did in 98. Um, so you had a bigger jump the two years before than you did the year of. What about 99? And then in 99, you know, with uh, the race fresh in people's minds, attendance fell slightly. Hmm. So that's a little confusing. You know, more people did watch baseball on TV during the 98 season, but then ratings fell every playoff round. And then that that's actually the, the worst rating for a world series ever. 98. At least according to this um, article, which was written in 2013. Really? Yeah. So, that would have been the Yankees when they're the first of their three in a row. Right? Yeah. A couple quotes um, from September of, of 98 McGuire saying, I definitely think we've brought the country together and helped make baseball a sport that people care about again. And then Budsey League said that same month, I would say we are back, that we have pretty much repaired all of the attendance damage. So you even have the people that are involved saying, yeah, I buy into this narrative. Mm -hmm. I think we brought baseball back when, mm, I don't know, maybe that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see where they're coming from, though. Like Sports Illustrated for three weeks in a row in September with the NFL coming back, we're just covering like live updates on sure. the home run race. I guess maybe it wasn't so much uh, people flooding back, which is what Seelig is saying, like in terms of uh, attendance at games or TV ratings, but maybe just the people that were watching had a different... Like back in the national conscience again. Yeah. Yep. So the, the overall home run list now, if you're curious, like I was, uh, Roger Maris is seventh. The top six, Barry Bonds, 73 in 2001. Number two is McGuire in 98, 70. 
Three is Sosa in 98 as well, 66. Fourth is McGuire in 99 with 65. Sosa, 64 in 2001. And then uh, six is Sosa uh, again, 63 in 1999. And maybe Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, for, up to 45 now. <laughs> yeah, it would take a, a Sosa-like month to get Giancarlo up there. Well, that was the 98 home run race. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll close out with a couple clips, a couple more clips from that memorable home run race. And then we have our interview with Chris Massey of the Williamsport Sun Gazette on the Little League World Series. That man, Mr. Bill Murray, looking on, rooting for 61. Bill one. that this is his last at bat of 1998. Take a good long look. This is going to have to last you until next March in Florida. First and third, two out. This week's guest on the podcast is Chris Massey. He's a writer for the Williamsport Sun Gazette. You can follow him on Twitter at Doc Massey. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, first, uh, curious to know what's your history with Williamsport? How many years have you been covering the Little League World Series? Um, are you from the, the area? Uh, I'm not from the area. I grew up uh, down near Westchester, Pennsylvania, about three hours from here, but I uh, went to Penn State, and this was the first job I got out of college uh, in 1999, so I've been here ever since. Uh, so this is my 19th year cover, 19th season covering the Little League World Series, so I feel like a uh, KG veteran by now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you've seen some really cool things. Uh, I was just thinking this weekend, kind of memorable Little League World Series moments for me, and the two that stood out were Danny Almonte that whole story yep. uh, back in 2001 and then uh, Moni Davis a couple years ago. Uh, yeah. 
maybe talk through those events a little bit, how to, how, you know, to cover them. What was that like? And then am I missing any kind of big, uh, big moments? No, I mean, I, those I think are the t- two that stand out above the others. I think if you ask most people to follow the series throughout the 2000s, those would probably be the top two storylines that come out of it. Uh, the Danny Almonte uh, thing was there, there was a buzz. I think coming in, everybody knew how, how great he was from watching him in the regional finals that year on TV. But I think there there were whispers from a lot of past opponents, I think, that uh, he might be – they might be bending the rules a little bit. Uh, there, was, there was no definitive proof. But, I mean, he, he looked like a man amongst boys. I mean, he nobody had a chance against him. The, the Florida team that eventually won the U.S. championship he faced them in their first pool play game, and he threw a perfect game against them, and, and that was a great hitting team. So uh, we knew there was something special about him, we, but we found out it wasn't so special because, you know, when you're 14 years old, it's it's a little bit easier to get a bunch of 12-year-olds out. But, but that was the talk of the series. Uh, the it was, from, it was a team from the Bronx, which was a great story at the time in itself. Uh, and the, so that we were – inundated with new york city media here that was the, the president bush came here that year uh he wanted to meet danny almonte so that kind of drove home how how big that story was that year oh. and then uh, uh monet davis was was probably maybe the biggest story maybe even bigger than almonte because she just took on a life of her own because uh, we've had female players here before but nobody that that kind of dominated the way she did and going out and shutting out a, a really good Tennessee team. And, you know, ESPN fell in love with her. Uh, I kind of felt bad for the rest of her team because it was a really good team. And I think ESPN paid so much attention to her that the rest of the team got overlooked. But that being said, she was, she was a great kid here and she handled it really well. Yeah. I think, uh, Almonte, I, I read, <clears throat> he struck out 62 of 72 batters. Uh, in, in 2001, so I think it's over 80% of hitters that are striking out. There's probably a substance that's uh, yeah, a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, are there any uh, big storylines this year? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like one particular player or, or maybe even team stands out. But what are some interesting things that you're following in 2017? Yeah, I I think the story this year is just. Like you said, I don't think there's a dominant team here on on the American side anyway. On the international side, South Korea and Japan play today, and I, those are the two clear front runners on the international side. Whoever wins that game today will have, I think, an inside track on on getting to the World Championship. But on the American side, I think it's up for grabs. I, I I've been impressed with Texas, California, and North Carolina the most, but they they all they all have some really good pitchers and they have a couple of good hitters here but there's no team that you look up and down the lineup and you're wowed by it so i think on any given day anybody just about anybody in this field's capable of beating the other team so i think it makes the games more interesting from that aspect uh you know there that and, and and there's a lot of power here that it seems like the kids get stronger every year i don't i don't know if it's if it's evolution if it's the bats or combination of of the of both but the home runs just seem to be going farther and farther every year and it's 
it's pretty amazing to see the kid, you know, 12, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids hit the ball as far as they do. Uh, Attendance-wise for the events, is that pretty dependent on if there's a regional team that makes it, or are there people that go every year to the event? Like, what, what what's that look like from year to year? If you don't have a team with maybe local ties or a team that's that's somewhat close, uh, I'd say on on the first weekend you're generally around 10,000 fans. Uh, on championship weekend, you know, you probably get between 20, 25,000. But if you have, like last year, we had uh, Maine Enwell New York, who, uh, or Enwell New York was the Maine Enwell Little League. They were about three hours from here. They were, they were pretty close to the Pennsylvania border. And they, they were drawn huge crowds as they kept winning games. And I think uh, they were drawn between 30 and 40,000 wow. as they as they got to the final weekend. Uh, the the record was we had Keystone Little League back in 2011. They're, they're from Lock Haven, which is about 20 minutes from Williamsport. And that, that was crazy. They had to move, they had to move all their games to eight o'clock just to accommodate uh, the crush of fans that was coming. And they, they set the record that year with 41,000. Uh, I think it was for their first game here. So, that and Redland, Pennsylvania, two years ago, which is a Harrisburg area team, they were drawn close to forty thousand. So, I, I, if if Little League can get a team that's that's somewhat close to Williamsport, they're they're pretty happy about it. Yeah, it's a it's a big kind of thing because I mean the the grandstands only hold probably five uh, eight thousand yeah. fans, and then you've got you know everyone else packed into the the outfield, the hill area. Yeah, that, and that's where you'll see so many of the fans is, is on that hill. And usually you can tell that's usually a good indicator of how big it is. Uh, usually the first hill is filled if it's a, if it's a decent-sized crowd. But when that whole second really big hill is filled, you you know, they might be making a run at a record. Well, last question, uh, ESPN, spending that baseball, they're, they're hosting uh, the Cardinals and Pirates tonight in Williamsport at yep. the minor league stadium. Uh, yep. Is that an event that the local people are excited about? Are there, are there a lot of Pirates fans around, or is that an event that uh, ESPN is just kind of creating to, to you know, <laughs> the Little League World Series on TV? Yeah, I, I think there's, if you talk to the locals around here, there's there's mixed reviews on it. It's, you know, because most of the Bowman Field, where, where they're playing a game, sits about, I'd say about 3,000 or so fans. And you know, with 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 all the little league players, the managers, the team hosts, and stuff, there was only about at most a thousand seats left over for the general public. So they so they had a lottery to see who would get those seats. So obviously, the people that didn't get seats are disgruntled about it. But but like you said, I this is all about the little league World Series and ESPN wanted to to tie that into the major leaguers. So. I, I think so, and I think a lot. Of, I'd say half the locals understand that, and they're not upset about it. But then the other half are saying, "This is our time. Ta- you know, we're, we're taxpayers here. We should, we have the right to go to the game." And so it's it's it, it's an interesting dichotomy, I guess, between the uh, the two camps. There, uh, personally, I I think it's great for the city. I mean, it's it's free exposure for them, major league. Baseball paid for I think three million dollars worth of renovations to Bowman Field, 
So, I, I mean, I think it's a win-win for the area. The, the, the exposure they're already getting for the Little League World Series, and then you put on top of that a Major League Baseball game. Uh, I don't know how the fan, even if you, you can't get tickets to the game, I, I, I can't really understand why you wouldn't think that that's a great thing for this city. Is it is it mostly pirate fans there, or what's the yeah? What's the it's definitely it's it's a mix between uh, probably pirates and Phillies fans. Although Phillies fans are harder and harder to come by these days, I think they're hiding in the woodwork right now. But uh, I I would say I I'd say Pittsburgh it, the area leans slightly Pittsburgh. Uh, I think in football season there there's more Steelers fans than Eagles fans, uh, but it's probably about a sixty forty split. So. I think I think the fact that the Pirates are here, you know, is is also exciting to a lot of the area fans. And from what I hear, you know, this is something that that the major leagues is gonna major league wants to try to do every year. And if they do that, I you know I think you'll see the Phillies here playing in this game in the future because uh, the Williamsport Crosscutters, the minor league team that plays at Bowman Field, that's a Phillies affiliate. So you know between that and the geographic. Uh, tie-ins, I, I think that would be a really good setup. So, you know, well, it, it, it's still interesting to see how they try to how if it's pulled off successfully tonight. And I, but I think if it is and everything goes smoothly, I think it's something that they're going to try to do again in the future. Awesome. Well, Chris Massey's been our guest on the podcast. Go read his work at the Williamsport Sun Gazette. I know you have a couple of games to uh, to cover this afternoon, so appreciate the time. Uh, you made for us. Uh, have a good rest of the Little League World Series. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Chris for joining us on the podcast. Uh, make sure to follow him on Twitter, check his work out. He's got the Little League World Series covered this year. Well, next week is our first Summer Flicks. We'll uh, watch it on Thursday, but then discuss with Scott on the podcast next week. And uh, that's about the only concrete thing we have planned. Yeah, I, I feel like the last month of the season, uh, it's definitely always the most entertaining. Baseball, where each pitch uh, counts or means something, is, I feel like, the best of any sport. Yep, and then I think the the Cy Young in the American League is locked up with Chris Sale, but I think the MVP in the AL and then both Cy Young and MVP in the National League are up for grabs, too. Yeah, I would agree. All right, well, uh, that does it for this week's podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Uh, someone this week said we're not on Android devices. So Are we on Spotify? We're not on Spotify. Are any podcasts? I know they have. I asked because it's listed, but I don't think they have any like prominent ones. The early adopter that I am, uh, I've recently got into Spotify um, about oh, nice. five years late, and I I saw that a few podcasts are on there. There's a podcast like channel, but ones that are popular. Like none of the none of the popular podcasts I listen to are on um, Spotify. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't recall any that were, but yeah, I would have guessed that they were popular. Are you a premium user? Oh, certainly not. No. Are you? Of course. Premium means that you have access to it without data, or means you can download playlists, but also that there's no ads. It's the biggest thing. So you download it and then you can listen to it wherever. But the main thing is there's no ads. How much does that cost a month? Nine. Hmm. It's worth it. I'll consider. We'll fix the Android thing this week. I promise. Uh, send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. We'll be tweeting about uh, summer flicks there, so check us out. Uh, and then 
head over to our website at footinthebox.com. Well, uh, Mr. Underwood, Fighting Illini basketball coach, will carry us out. Uh, but before that, Paul, say your thing. <laughs> Remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. University of Illinois basketball coach Brad Underwood. Here we go, Cup fans. Help me out. A one, a two, a three. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Yeah.